Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast. Clarissa and I sat down with Dr. Joan Kent. Joan Kent has a PhD in psychoactive nutrition. She was the first to document the brain chemical pathways of sugar addiction and explain the sugar fat seesaw hormonally and chemically. Joan has helped hundreds and hundreds of clients with metabolic conditions, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and with inflammation and mood issues. She has written two best-selling books, Stronger Than Sugar and The Sugar-Free Workout. We wanted to hear more about her dissertation regarding sugar as a major trigger for both binge eating and cravings, and what it was like to be the first person to outline the neurochemical pathways of addiction to sugar, saturated fat, and white flour more than 20 years ago. We asked her to explain what happens to us when we eat sugar and what that has to do with addiction. We discussed whether fruit addiction and sugar addiction are one and the same. We wanted to know about protein and fiber, volume addiction, carbs and sleep. And of course, we had to know how do athletes who have sugar addiction fuel their workouts? Welcome, Dr. Kent. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kent. Can you please share with us your aha moment that this was sugar addiction, food addiction, whatever that might, whatever you call it. Tell us about that. Give us that story. Okay. Here's my aha moment. And I have a feeling it might be different from any other aha moments. I knew I was addicted to sugar before anyone was even talking about it. So I don't have an aha about that. But people were not quitting sugar back then. And here's something that happened that I was completely unprepared for. The first time I quit sugar completely, my energy went through the roof. I felt as if I could do anything. And I didn't know how to deal with that. I was accustomed to being obsessed with food. What I could eat that day, what I couldn't eat that day, what I needed to avoid that day, what I craved, what I was going to crave, and blah, 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 blah. And I had been so stuck in my food problems I had no idea how to get through the day without those sessions. So as crazy as it seems, and laugh at me if you need to, I ate some sugar. It immediately took away my super high energy, (laughs) and it put me back on familiar ground, feeling the way I had felt most of my life. And the good news was I didn't want to be back there. I didn't like the way I had just made myself feel. The great news was I got back on track and quit again. And yay, the second time I did not sabotage myself when I reached that sugar quitting nirvana stage. So yeah, so it stuck. (laughs) Yeah, That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. We definitely want to hear about your dissertation story regarding sugar as the major trigger for both binge eating and cravings in 1999. What was it like to be the first person to outline the neurochemical pathway of addiction to sugar, saturated fat, and white flour more than 20 years ago? Okay, so it sounds as if we're like kind of in the middle of like two things. Do you want to hear about the dissertation or do you want me to tell you what it was like being the first person to do that? I'll go either way. I'm fine. You tell me. 
but please tell us both. We want to hear it all. We do. Both. Gee, you guys are amazing. Okay, absolutely amazing. Okay, so here's my dissertation story, and I will keep this brief because who wants to listen to that? But I set it up with three research groups. One was instructed to follow a low-fat diet. One was instructed to follow, and we told them how to do this, and one was a no-sugar diet, and then the third group was a control group. And each group was recording data for their cravings, including what they craved and how intense the cravings were, and also for their binges, including what they ate and how much they ate when they binged. And the low-sugar group started having fewer cravings and less intense cravings, and they also became so strict about what they considered a binge that eating one cookie would be listed in their food log as a binge. Can you imagine? I mean, it went from like some of them in the beginning were putting a circle around the whole page because they felt they were binging the entire day, and they actually were. And then all of a sudden, it turned into eating a cookie was a binge. The low-fat group were struggling. Oh, my God, they were struggling, and they were struggling with sugar cravings. And I couldn't give them any advice because it was research. And that's when I realized I was really a clinician because it was absolutely heartbreaking to listen to them struggle, to listen to their struggles and not be able to offer help. I had to keep my mouth shut and just keep recording data. That was hard for me. So yes, I'm a clinician. I want to help people. So that was the research for my dissertation. I also, in my dissertation, outlined the hormonal and neurochemical factors in the sugar fat seesaw, which was a phenomenon that was acknowledged in a number of research articles, but never explained. And one or two other things as well, but let's leave it at that. So that was my research. And then Clarissa said, what was it like to be the first person to outline the neurochemical pathway of addiction to sugar? Okay. I started this in 1995 and the research itself was a challenge because of the paucity of research material. Now, even 10 years later, even 2005, there was a lot more stuff around, but back in 1995, there was nothing. And at that time, no one was writing about sugar addiction. It wasn't a thing. In fact, some researchers had written that there was no such thing. So I was reading material that was not directly related to sugar or to sugar addiction. I can remember radio assays were performed on rat brain. And then there I was trying to put that together with articles on psychology, hypoglycemia, food allergies, food sensitivities, alcoholism, and so on. Now you can find 5,000 books. You want to know how to quit sugar? There are 5,000 books around telling you how to do that, but not one existed then. What was even more interesting was that the reactions that people had when I told them what I was studying were, let's say, not very friendly. Okay, Most of them smirked at me, and all of them looked me over from head to toe. Yeah, I got the once over, the body scan. They looked me over to see, like I told them I was studying sugar addiction and they wanted to check out my body. And that was made me uncomfortable, but what could I do? When I gave presentations, I had many negative and emotional reactions from the audience. People would yell at me from the audience. (laughs) One of my clients attended a talk of mine and told me afterward how interesting it was to watch the reactions from the back of the room. And I said, you think it's interesting back there? You should see it from up here. You know, the cartoon characters, you've probably seen these in cartoons where somebody's angry. You know, one of the characters is is angry and you see daggers coming out of their eyes to show that they're angry. 
that's what I would see. I would be up in front of the room and the daggers would be coming out of their eyes. I did a presentation for fitness professionals one time and a woman stood up and yelled and she did yell. I have the same degree you do because we both had master's degrees in exercise physiology and I did not have my PhD at that time. And she said, I have the same degree you do and you don't know what you're talking about. So this is what it was like. What was it like? That's what it was like, ladies. <laughs> Has it changed at all these days? I mean, now having your PhD in psychoactive nutrition, that kind of thing, like how has it changed for you? Well, I think uh, these days, I think everyone knows that sugar is addictive. So nobody argues with that. They really just want information about how to handle it, about how to get rid of the sugar in their lives that is causing so many problems for them. And it's not really in any way the kind of content. What do I want to say? What's, I, there's a word I'm looking for, but it's just not the confrontive, confrontational scene that I described for you a little while ago. That just doesn't exist. And yeah, I have people who argue with me, but that's okay. I don't mind if somebody argues. If they want to listen, they want to say, well, I didn't hear it that way. I learned such and such. It's like, okay, that's fine. This is what my research shows. And that's what your research shows. And you know, we're good, but it's not at all. <laughs> people tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So you don't find... Yeah, no, it is very interesting. And what I'm wondering is, do you find other eating disorder, not that you're an eating disorder specialist, but like eating disorder, nutritionist, therapist, that, do you ever find that they get contentious about, you know, when it comes to food addiction and what comes or sugar addiction and what comes with the treatment of that? I mean, do you ever have pushback from those folks? Actually, I kind of do. One guy was describing, he was teaching the class and I was just taking the class and he was talking about how the client he was working with claimed that, I'm trying to figure the way he said it, claimed that she was having a problem and around four o'clock, she just couldn't handle it anymore. Or she just gave in. And he said she claimed that something made her just eat cookies at that time. And I said, would you consider that maybe at that time, she really did have something telling her to eat those cookies. And he said, oh, well, yeah, I think there's a lot we can say about this, but I don't think anybody ever gets addicted to food. And he was a registered dietitian, so he had his very set program. So yes, so that would be an example of that. And I do have people thinking that it's not like I really look at it from a neurochemical perspective. I do have a lot of people telling me that I'm not looking at it the right way. It's more about behavior. It's not about brain chemistry as if brain chemistry doesn't affect behavior. So there you go. So, yes, thanks for bringing up these memories. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think we're just so interested. Clarissa and I are just so interested because we've been having this conversation along the way that we get a lot of pushback and not necessarily always directed at us, but that there's a lot of noise out there for our clients who do, you know, identify as sugar addiction, food addiction, that as having that disease. And so it becomes noisy for them, right? That like, yeah, but you're not addicted to food. Well, we don't have to eat cookies to stay alive. Yes, we have to eat tomatoes to stay alive, you know, or whatever. Like, so there's right. just all these nuances. And so one of the things that we like to ask our guests is how do you push back on those people who show up and say sugar addiction isn't real or food addiction isn't real? Like, how do you 
come back at, do you use science? Do you use just anecdotal experience? I mean, I know you've seen thousands of clients at this point kind of deal. Um, what do you say to them and how do you push back? Yes, it is good to fall back on science because that's something that doesn't get argued with quite as easily. Anecdotal evidence can help as well. Sometimes a story really does make the point. I guess pushback doesn't scare me the way it used to because when it did, I found myself thinking, OMG, what am I going to do? And nobody even said OMG in those days. That was not a thing. So, but, you know, it was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? But now I'm a little more comfortable with it. And I do know that it's real. And I had a woman, and this kind of surprised me. I had a woman say, it's like, what's the first thing that people who talk about food addiction tell you? Well, get rid of sugar, get rid of white flour. So what's the difference between saying sugar addiction and saying, okay, let's talk about food addiction, get rid of sugar, get rid of white flour. And there's more to it, of course, but still don't give me this. I don't know what you're talking about because of course you do. You know, that's, yeah. So I know. No, 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 that's great. I'm just wondering if you can like explain to our listeners exactly because you have so much knowledge, what happens to us when we eat sugar and what does that have to do with addiction? And then maybe your thoughts on like, why we shouldn't just eat whatever we crave? Good question. Okay, so let's start with the simple thing. Let's go with insulin because I think that's a simpler fact. So let's start with that. Sugar generally triggers a pronounced insulin response. Now, some people have an exaggerated insulin response to sugar that they eat, and that can lead to huge drops in their blood glucose, and it can bring on low energy, mood changes, cravings, and a number of other symptoms. So the cravings, not surprisingly, can lead to the consumption of more and more sugar. So there's kind of an addictive loop there, but the actual addiction has to do with brain chemistry. So we're looking at a relatively rapid release of beta endorphin. And I know most people say endorphins. I'll try to remember to say that. So rapid release of endorphins and dopamine. And those two chemicals involve both brain reward, I feel good when I have this, and reinforcement, that was great, I want to do it again. And they're the reason we tend to want more and more sugar. So a little bit later on, this goes back to insulin again, there's a synthesis and a release of serotonin. And the chain is linear. The more sugar, the more insulin, the more serotonin. As each one increases, the others increase as well. And serotonin is associated with seeking behaviors. So in lab animals, it might look like the animals climbing all over the cage to get to whatever it is they're seeking. But translated into human behavior, the dopamine and endorphins are what make us want Ben and Jerry's in the middle of the night. And it's the serotonin that makes us throw on a a coat over our our, uh, PJs and run out to the store in the middle of the night to get some. That's the seeking behavior. How much trouble are you willing to go through to get that? So that's a serotonin thing. And why? Oh, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. I was trying to remember the, I knew there was another question. I was trying to remember it. Go ahead. Yeah. So can you then explain to us why we shouldn't eat what we crave? Well, the short answer is it can backfire. So this has to do with a phenomenon known as priming. And the term priming originally comes from drug research. And it refers to the way a small amount of a substance prompts the desire for more, sometimes right away, sometimes a little bit later. And this has to do with dopamine. And there's a little confusion about this because I've heard some sugar addiction, what do you want to call them, coaches or counselors, 
talk about opioid priming. There really is no such thing as opioid priming. Priming has to do with dopamine. And there are four types of dopamine receptors in the brain. And I do believe it is the D1 receptor that's involved in priming. So eating what we crave can take the craving away for a while, but the cravings might come back and they might come back even stronger later on. And that phenomenon can actually lock us into an addictive pattern, which is why I think abstinence is really the way to go. And because you're nodding, I'm thinking you must feel the same way. Abstinence works best because it gets us away from priming and other things. Absolutely. Thank you so much for explaining that, like getting that locked in and and why it's that priming behavior. And it's just like that repeated thing and it gets bigger and bigger each time, right? Like the desire becomes louder each time. Louder. Yeah, for sure. Well said. Yeah. So we are super interested in protein and fiber. We recently talked to David Wist, who's like team fiber gang. And we just interviewed Dr. Ted Naiman yesterday, who's all about prioritizing protein. And so we're really interested in your take on these things. So what protein imposters should we steer clear of? And how do you help your clients get adequate protein And what are the best foods for fiber? And how do you help your clients get enough fiber? So basically, what are the best sources of protein and fiber? And how do you help people get enough of them? And what should we be steering clear of? That's a lot of questions. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's okay. That's okay. Let 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 me wade through those. You can help me if I forget something, and I probably will. But protein imposters, I don't know if that's a widely used term. I made it up one day to describe foods that people think of as protein foods that are really not protein. So things like nuts or quinoa or sometimes even beans. And I'm not suggesting that we steer clear of them. I think that was the phrase you used. I'm not thinking that we have to steer clear of them because those things are good. I mean, nuts are great. They have monounsaturated fats. That's good for heart health. And if you substitute, let's say somebody's eating things like French fries and what are those things called? Fried chicken sandwiches. If somebody's eating fat like that and they substitute monounsaturated fats from nuts, this is actually a good change. So I wouldn't say stay away from these foods. Quinoa is a very, very healthful grain, but it's a grain. It's a carbohydrate. Does it have a little bit of protein? Sure. But almost every food has a little bit, you know, a little bit of protein, a little bit of carb, a little bit of fat, and some have more than one. But nuts are primarily fats. And believe it or not, the second macronutrient they usually have is carbohydrate. And the protein is last on the list. And yet people call this, I call this the myth that won't die because they keep calling it protein food and nuts are just not. And again, I know a woman who is a sugar addiction counselor who tells people to eat peanut butter for their protein. There's nothing wrong. I don't have anything against peanut butter. But for heaven's sake, if someone is trying to really keep up their level of protein, they need to eat some real protein that's going to do it, not something that has a whole mess of fat and a small amount of protein. Like get that protein into them so that they can make some changes. Yeah. So what are the best sources of protein and how do you help your clients, the people you work with, make sure that they're getting adequate amounts? Okay. So animal proteins tend to be good and These days, there are so many people who are vegan that, okay, so let's see. If you can get people to eat, for example, fish or shrimp or chicken or things of that sort, that's a good way to get protein. 
But if you have someone who's vegan, instead of having them rely on nuts or quinoa uh, or even what's the usual vegetarian combination, beans and rice. Now that is a traditional vegetarian combination, but what you end up with is one heck of a lot of starch and only a small amount of protein. So I would say the secret lies in protein powders. And there are so many different kinds that uh, you can use pea protein, hemp protein, and so many different kinds of vegetable protein. So with all of that going on, that's the way I would say get that in. And the other thing is how to structure a meal. And so it depends on what you call a meal. And I like to see a meal that includes protein and vegetables, lots of vegetables, and good, healthy carbohydrates, good, healthy starches, and then some good, wholesome fats as well. And that's a very, very square and balanced meal. And that is good for stability. Now, this is not sexy, but this is what I recommend all the time, keeping people stable. And the stability refers to their glucose and it refers to the brain chemistry. And if you can balance all of those, then that person can now start making decisions about what they're going to eat. And we know there's more to it than just that. But if you can get them going in that direction, that is a very good first step or a very good change for them to make. So, all right. Yeah, no, now we've, so Clarissa and I have had the honor of hearing you speak specifically on serotonin before and, and some of the questions that had come up where you really talked about how starches really help with the production of serotonin and that kind of thing. Now, does fiber play a role in like a protective measure with those starches and those of us who have sugar or food addiction where it could cue or trigger some of those like sweet seeking or like, do you know what I mean? Like some of those craving behaviors that can come, does fiber at all play a role in a protective way there? Or am I completely out in left field with that? You might be in left field, but I I don't think I've ever, no, I didn't mean that toward you. I meant, (laughs) I have never really heard that. Like the fiber is acting in a protective way. But what I will say is that the most healthful starches typically are those that do have fiber in them. Like white bread is not going to have much fiber in it. But at the same time, I think we both know, or we all know that it's junk. So the fiber can usually come together with the most healthful starches. And I hope that does answer your question. Yeah. So what would be some good examples of good healthful starches then for somebody who might be listening to this, who needs to know like how to make better choices for themselves? There you are. I'm going to have to ask you to repeat that again. Yeah, absolutely. So what might be some good choices that somebody could make? Like what are some of the best starch choices that are higher in fiber? So people can make better choices for themselves if they have that as part of their food plan. Okay, let's go back and say quinoa. Okay, quinoa is not a protein, but it certainly is a very good carbohydrate. And things like turnips or things like squash or things like lentils. I mean, these are good and they do have fiber and they're really wholesome and they're fairly stabilizing. I remember reading an article about slow carbohydrates And the word for the slow carbohydrates was lenty. And I couldn't help but think about lentils. It's like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's perfect. Just slow. So they're not going to, they're not going to cause the glucose to rise in a rush 
And as a result, they're not going to trigger a huge influx of insulin. So those are the things that can cause problems. So yeah, good question. So we also have many clients who identify as volume addicts. And recently, we heard you speak about starches and their role in serotonin production, and that this may be what volume addicts are actually seeking when they eat large amounts of food. Can you just explain to our listeners more about that and what may be something you would be like suggest for them to start? Like, How would you work with someone who struggles with volume? Okay, first of all, that I will call the serotonin feeling. And that need for the serotonin feeling can be satisfied by eating so much that the stomach gets really stretched because that will trigger the release of serotonin. But I think we can do it without that, simply by putting together meals that include some starches without, you know, don't do the low carb or the no carb thing. This is one of the reasons that I don't have my people doing keto diets. It's like, get some carbohydrates in there. And so the way, you know, we've just described by putting all these things together, there could be enough, you know, and you might have to tweak it for each individual, maybe bring up the starches a little bit in this person's diet, maybe bring up the protein a little bit in this person's diet, but basically don't skip over the starches completely. And they might find that the serotonin production that they're dealing with, that they're creating is adequate and that may keep them from craving it through volume. So I do think that one of the approaches to take is not to rely on a diet that's completely absent. However popular it may be to say carbs are bad and let's get it out of the diet, I think there's a lot to be said for having the right kinds of things. And we've already talked about some healthy things like that. Here's another way to deal with it. Maybe a small snack. It doesn't have to be big. All we have to do is trigger a change in brain chemistry. So a small snack of starch about maybe 70 to 90 minutes before bed, that may help just give them that serotonin feeling. Or let's say you have a client who knows she wants to feel that serotonin feeling at a certain time of the day, let's just say at dinner, it doesn't have to be at dinner. Well, follow that plate format that I was talking about before. Maybe I, I can give you a fuller example of that, a fuller description of that, but cut way down on the protein or use turkey as the protein. And then, cause that's going to bring in lots of tryptophan and that person can get that serotonin feeling without having to go for high volume. So those would be my suggestions. That's amazing. And I'm going to let Clarissa ask you about the athletes that you work with and keeping them sugar-free. But before she does that, I want to know if you would speak to us about how fruit addiction, fruit addiction, sorry, if I'm not enunciating there for my listeners, fruit addiction can become the new sugar addiction. Will you speak about a little bit about why raw food diet may not mix with sugar addiction and what is the smarter way to do those things? Raw foods, fruits, that kind of thing. Can you speak to that piece of it? Because there's such a debate. Do fruit, no fruit. And there's got to be a middle ground here. Help us out, will you, Dr. Kent? Thank you. Yes, I would be happy to. And I appreciate the question. So let's see. Fruit is sugar. There's no doubt about it. And the sugar in fruit is fructose. As a matter of fact, that's kind of a nasty sugar. Sucrose, which is table sugar, is junk and everybody knows it but it's made up 
of half fructose and half glucose. And seriously, all researchers know that what makes sucrose, the junk that it is, is the fructose in it, not the glucose. So this is one reason I never worry if my clients don't eat fruit. You know, I don't eat much fruit. Fine. (laughs) Right. Eat the vegetables. Let's worry about the fruit later. We can add that back in when you're feeling stable. There's that unsexy word again. So yes, you can become, I've had clients who've presented with fruit addictions and I don't even think they knew that they were addicted. You know, when they came in to see me for the very first time, they had no idea what was going on. But then a look at their food logs indicated that they were very addicted to the fruits themselves and they were eating them in large quantities just because that's the stuff they liked, that they were eating sugar. So I think that, yes, it's absolutely true that people can become addicted to fruit and that it actually just takes the place of the sugar addiction, whatever they have. But I think it also contributes to why I read articles and online posts that claim sugar cravings never go away, which is nonsense. They do go away. That's what's wonderful. They absolutely do go away, but they can't and they won't if you're always answering your cravings with sugar and fruit is a form of sugar. Like, how is that going to help? I have a craving for sugar, so I'm going to eat this kind of sugar instead of that kind of sugar. And that's really not the way to go. So let's think about all the fancy, sexy sugars that throw people off, like agave, and people will pretend that it's not sugar, or coconut sugar, or maple syrup. And I'm probably forgetting about a hundred of them, but honey. I recently found a list of 262. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay. I'll never yeah. be able to match that list. But And honey, even Manuka honey, because everyone says, oh, that's great stuff. Well, it may be in the same way that you can say things about chocolate and say, this is really great for you, but it's not going to be great for a sugar addict. So, you know, we have to make a decision about this. So if you're going to do the chocolate thing, it should be something like, what's this stuff called? Cacao. So it yeah. Needs to be unsweetened cacao. Really bitter. Then you get, mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you get the benefits of it without the sugar. But when it comes to fruit, th- there's no way around it. Fruit has sugar in it. So, so what about the raw food? Kind of sugar. Oh, right. Yes. Right. That is. That is. So, what about the raw food diets? I mean, I read your book, and you kind of hinted at why raw food diets might not mix with sugar addiction. What is the smarter way to do that? Like, what should we be aware of if our clients are preferring raw food? Okay. You know, I'll encourage people. People want to go raw. Eat raw. That can be fine, but there tend to be two tracks. There'll be the like the vegetable track and then the fruit track. So if somebody, I'll answer the second part of your question first, what's the smarter way to do it? Well, if you can get somebody on a raw vegetable track, that's probably the smartest way for them to go. It's like, good, eat that, watch out for too much stomach upset. You know, just watch out that you're not eating too many raw foods. And very few people actually go 100% raw. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be 100% raw to give you the benefit. But if you take the fruit track, that can lead to trouble for all the reasons we were just talking about. And I can remember one woman telling me that she loved eating raw because she could wake up in the morning and eat pie for breakfast. And her pie was made of like a shell, I guess it was crumbled nuts. Okay. And it was filled with some kind of fruit puree and then allowed to set in the, uh, in the refrigerator and no cooking. 
well, I don't think this is a good way for anybody to start the day. You know, I think I'll have a nice plate of sugar. Bad idea. And it certainly is a bad way for anybody who has a, a problem with sugar addiction to start the day. So that's an example. Don't do the fruit track, do the vegetable track. And to the degree that you can push somebody in that direction, that's good. But a lot of people who are addicted to sugar just don't like vegetables, right? And that has everything to do with how much sugar they've been eating in whatever form they've been telling themselves. So you might need to work on stability before you let them go in the totally raw direction, because as they stop getting used to sugar, as they stop expecting sweet things, they'll probably get to the point that they can taste other things in food and enjoy them and get flavor out of these things that they thought didn't have taste because they didn't have any sugar. I hope that wasn't TMI, but No, no, that was perfect. I mean, I can definitely relate to the fruit addiction, being someone who thought I was eating healthy and I was eating like three to four Honeycrisp apples a day and just thinking like, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away and like I'm living my best life like this. But then once, you know, it was suggested I remove them, I realized the potency of that addiction and how I started to really resent every single individual I saw eating an apple and just it becoming like such a strong addiction for me. And I couldn't agree more that, you know, a lot of the clients, when we start working with them, that yeah, vegetables don't taste sweet. And so they're not that appealing. And you have to wait three, four weeks to get your taste buds back before those start to taste delicious again. So I just really appreciate uh, your thoughts on that. So thanks for sharing that, Dr. Ken. So we would be remiss if we did not talk to you about working out sugar-free. We know you spent 14 years teaching and coaching an athletic performance program in which you were the lead nutritionist. What did you discover about athletes and sugar-free performance? Okay. First of all, it works very well. I had clients way back, way back before I learned this stuff. I had clients who used to, like one, one woman in particular was sponsored. She was a really high-level athlete, and she was sponsored by a, a food bar company. And they wanted her to push the bars, and they also wanted her to eat them. They were sending her cartons of these things, and it wasn't working for her. And I told her she was going to have to get away from the bars. And she did, and then suddenly her performance went higher. So she got away from the sugar and she could do better in her performance without the sugar. And so that was great. But what I have people do is I need to back up and say that this is really for people who work out hard. So if somebody just goes walking for 40 minutes, 30 minutes, and they're comfortable with that, they don't need to stock up. They don't need to eat a special way. Just eat what makes you comfortable eat so you don't feel as if you have a brick in your stomach when you're doing your walking. Don't worry about it because you're really not expending the kind of energy that really needs to be replenished or really needs to be built up. Okay, so that's what I want to say. Now, having said that, I'll say for those people who work out hard, increase the starches and the healthful fats a little bit, but still work with that kind of plate. I have You know what? I bet this is like the silliest thing, but I think this is a really good recommendation. I have a book called The Sugar-Free Workout, 
It's only $2.99. It basically has recipes and different things that you can use. I had one go-to meal when I was in this athletic training program that used oatmeal. But some people don't like oatmeal and some people really don't want to start anything with any kind of grain. So I came up with another version of it that involved two different types of squash, butternut squash and kabocha. And you could kind of mash them together with a potato masher and it really worked well. And then you don't have to use the grains that you don't want or anything like that. It was just, it just worked really well. So you would puree together or mash together two kinds of squash? Yes. So they were already cooked the way I would normally cook squash. Okay. Any way you want, put them in the oven, do whatever the heck you want, get them cooked, and then scrape them out of the skin, get rid of the seeds, and use a potato masher to mash them together. And actually, it tastes pretty good. And then you can use that, and you have plenty of carbohydrates in a mixture like that. And at the same time, you're not falling back on the carbs you don't want to use, the uh, the grains or anything like that that you don't want to use. And I, it's a really good solution. But all of this is in my book, The Sugar-Free Workout. And as I said, it's inexpensive and it's really easy to just read these. So there are variations on that as well. And there you go. Thank you. No, I think that's a really great suggestion. Not only should they read your book, but also, you know, you giving that to people, I think is just nice for listeners to be able to say like, yeah, I don't enjoy oatmeal, but I could try this other thing. So Clarissa and I have talked to a lot of people about this, where these camps kind of develop, right? Like there's eating disorder camp and food addiction camp. There's carnivore and there's vegan. There's team fruit, no fruit, team fiber, no fiber. And what we have found in talking to people is that oftentimes these dichotomies or these, these camps really hide sugar or food addiction. So can you tell us what athletics and sugar have in common? And do you think that workouts can hide a sugar addiction? I do think that workouts can hide a sugar addiction. But what I'm going to say about this, I'm again, once again, talking about people who tend to be athletes rather than the person who's very comfortable just going out for a daily walk. And that's what their exercise is. And they're comfortable with that. Okay. So when you do athletic performance and Clarissa may know about this because she says she considers herself an athlete. So if you do performance athletics, you know that it can bring up all kinds of anxiety. Am I going to be able to perform at this level, at the level that I did yesterday or last time or whenever it was? Am I going to be able to do the things I think I should do? Am I going to be able to handle it? Am I going to be able to handle the discomfort? Will I be able to handle the pain? And all of those things come up. And at the same time, if you think about being addicted to sugar and quitting sugar, it's when we quit that all that craziness comes up, all the noise in your head comes up because now you have cravings that you're dealing with and some anxiety. Will I be able to stay off it? Will I be able to find a way around this? Will I be able to fuel myself without using the junk? And all of these things are good. So there's a similarity in that regard. And to clear the noise in your head, in both cases, the goal is to become non-reactive, non-reactive to the pain of the exercise, to become non-reactive to the pain of quitting sugar so that you can get to the point that you look at sugar, just staring at a plate of brownies 
staring you full in the face and literally have no reaction to it. It's like, that's a plate of brownies. I don't eat brownies. And you're moving right along. And it doesn't have you go, oh, I want the brownies, but I can't have the brownies. And I want the brownies and I can't have the brownies. And there's no white knuckling and there's no vacillating back and forth. So that's what I meant when I said athletic performance and sugar addiction can have something in common. And now let's go. I think you said how someone can use workouts to hide their sugar addiction. Well, yeah. Especially if they're in a very robust program. Once again, they're not just going for a walk for their exercise, but they're doing a really tough program. So it looks as if they really care, doesn't it? Why would somebody sign up for this really tough program if they didn't really care? But it doesn't necessarily mean they do care. What it can mean is that they've just found a way around it. They found a way to make it look as if they're really into it. And yet, it involves some time and it involves some persistence. It involves some glucose. It involves some brain chemistry. And the whole idea is to get this stabilized so that they're making decisions instead of reacting. But the point is they play games. And this is not a nice thing. doesn't sound like a nice thing to say. But seriously, they'll play games. They'll say, oh, well, I need more specific information. And then you you do that and they'll say, well, no, I need a tailor made for me. And right. And then even that, then you do that and that's not enough. Well, I don't really know what I should be eating, you know, every minute of every day, give me, and every single time you take a step with them along this BS pathway, it's never enough. And then they want something else and they want something more. And they act as if Their program hasn't begun because you haven't made it as specific as they are asking for. Yeah, and it's all just BS. No, it's never going to be specific enough for them because then they'll find something else that they want. Give them that and they'll ask for something else. Mm -hmm. Give them this other thing and they'll ask for something else. So that's what I mean by using the workouts to hide. And yet they'll be training really well. They'll show up for all the trainings and they never miss those. But when it comes to the food, it's a smoke screen. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about a couple people that I've worked with over the course of the last few years where they are personal trainers and they work out when their clients work out. So they're working out four or five hours a day and they're in great shape. They're working out long hours, but then they're binging on candy and sweets and that kind of thing. Do you ever come across that kind of thing, you know, where it's hidden, right? Because they look good, right? They don't seem to have a weight problem. People aren't seeing them overeat at meals. It's really this like hidden binging on the candy, the ice cream, whatever in the dark after hours. And have you ever worked with somebody in that position? And if so, like, what is kind of like your, like, what would you say to them to make that behavior change? Okay. So I don't think I can say I've worked with a fitness professional who's doing that. I have seen it, but I have never worked with somebody. Nobody has ever asked me how to handle it. But I have have seen regular clients who will use all kinds of shenanigans. (laughs) It's a good word. All kinds of shenanigans to cover up the junk that they're eating and I don't know, basically cast the light in the wrong direction so that we don't notice what they're doing. I think it would have to be backing them into a corner and saying, it's time to commit. What do you want? There is absolutely no shame 
in saying, I don't want to quit sugar. There's no shame in that. Okay, that's not what you want. It is okay not to want to quit sugar, right? And so if that's not what they want, then why do we need to push them in any direction? You're good. Keep on doing what you're doing. You're good. So they need to commit. They need to be clear, crystal clear on what they really want, and then you can show them how to get it. But as long as there is this smokescreen, as long as there all is all of this BS that's making them look as if they're doing it one way, when in reality, as you just pointed out, behind the scenes when no one can see them, they're sneaking the food. And of course, it's not about weight. And a lot of people think fitness is all about weight. And when people start talking to me about that, I just think about the Challenged Athletes Foundation. And those people, these are people with missing limbs, you know, missing arms, missing legs, and in some cases, both. And I'm probably going to start crying when I say this. It doesn't really matter. The point is, they're more okay with their bodies than most of us are with ours. But more to the point, it's so not about how cute you look in your little outfit. It's so about what you can do. And if somebody is okay with what they do, it doesn't really matter how they look in their outfit. And, you know, you can work through that. And I probably have answered, gone in too many directions that I didn't really pinpoint that. I like to be more of a pinpoint answerer, but I (laughs) I have a feeling I rambled on that one. So, No, no, that was great. I mean, I could definitely identify as someone who was up to those shenanigans working out (laughs) several hours of the day in order to compensate for the sugar addiction that I wasn't really ready to address at that time, right? So, you know, eating really well during the day, well, because obviously I didn't want it to affect my fitness, but then just like giving myself more permission to consume the sugary foods in the evening because now like, well, I'm probably in a calorie deficit and I definitely deserve some of this and, and, you know, it'll be fine and I'll, I'll stop doing this tomorrow. So I agree with you. I think there is so much BS that goes on. And I think the biggest question that we need to look at in these situations is, do you have any peace surrounding this cycle that you're in right now? Because what that is, is not enjoyable at all. You are working out all day and binging all evening and it eventually, it becomes impossible to maintain like any kind of functional alcoholic, right? It's like that functional sugar addict. Exactly. So I really appreciated your answer on that, Joan. So can you tell us what's next for you? Where can our listeners find you? Oh, okay. Let's see. You can go to my website, which is lastresortnutrition.com. You can send me an email if you have a specific question at drjoan at lastresortnutrition.com. And that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me, those two things. Okay. And do you have any projects that you're working on that are coming up next? You have another book in the works that maybe we should know about? I don't know. Do you or or what are what are you working on? Well, let me say this. I feel as if there is another book there, but it isn't yet in the planning stages. So I don't want to talk about it because it would be premature to do that. But thanks for asking. Fair. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So before you go, we have a signature question that we ask all our guests, some version of it. So this is for you. If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar, sugar addiction, food addiction, what would it be? 
okay, I would want to tell her to stop wasting her time looking for a loophole. And what I mean by a loophole is that one sugar or that one sugary food that appears to permit unrestricted consumption while still giving benefits of recovery. It's just an illusion. You know what I mean? Oh, I can eat this, but I can tell everybody I'm in recovery, or I can even believe myself that I'm in recovery while I'm eating this junk food. And yeah, so whatever it is, I kept looking for that sneaky sugar, that one thing that I would be able to eat in any quantity I wanted that would allow me to to look for this loophole. And it doesn't exist. And I told a client this, you know, I was working with her and it just seemed important because of the way she was going. And I just said, I've checked out the loopholes. Nobody looked harder than I did. And there really isn't one. And she didn't even hesitate. She said, oh, I'll find it. And, you know, I just like, oh, my God, you are so not ready to do this. Okay, but that's a separate thing. But I digress. Anyway, the other thing I'd want to tell that younger version of me is that not to fear life without sugar, because it's much better without it than it is with it. You know, no mood swings, no depression. I used to have depression all the time, and now I never do. No cravings, no getting sick. You know, when everybody else is getting whatever is going around and coming around, none of that. So life without sugar is better. And yeah, I want to tell that younger version not to fear being without sugar. So those are my answers. Thank you. You are right. Life without sugar is better. It's the best. And so we couldn't, we couldn't agree more, Joan. <laughs> we were literally just having that conversation today about like, we love taking pictures and videos of our life and sharing it on our social media with our followers and our clients and our listeners, because it's just so different, right? It's just like, what do they say? It's like life in color now or technicolor, right? It's, it's no longer that numbed or blunted effect. Like we get to show up and feel it all and experience it all. And it is, it is so much better. So just thank you so much for your time today. Your answers to our questions were wonderful. I feel like I've learned more about you and more about this field in just this hour. So thank you again so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for asking me to do this. It was a privilege. It really was. And I loved it. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.